0: Hi everyone, this is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. And today we are joined by veteran political strategist and commentator Joel Payne. In 2016, he was the director of African American advertising for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Prior to that, Joel served as the deputy press secretary for the late former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. He is also a political contributor for CBS News. I saw him just last night commenting on the State of the Union, and he is the host of the Here Comes the Pain, P-A-Y-N-E, podcast, and a repeat guest, one of the very few repeat guests on Passing Judgment. We're breaking our rule for you. Thanks for joining us, Joel.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me. I had such a good time talking to you last time. Looking forward to chatting again.
0: I am excited, and I heard some of your thoughts last night. I was watching CBS and listening to you where um, we're both contributors. I, Of course, it was not my night. It was a political night, and I'm hoping we can start just talking about President Biden's State of the Union by what were your biggest takeaways? Let's start really broad with, we don't have to do a grade because that's so trite, but how did he do
1: I think generally speaking, the president did fine. Um, state of the unions are things that I think are hard to win or lose, mostly because they exist in about a 24, 36 hour news cycle and then they kind of disappear. Like think about I can I can maybe think of one state of the union in the past 25 years that I remember, and it's probably George Bush after 9-11. And it was because it was a declaration of war and we were in a moment where we were fixated on every single thing that was happening on the news, but like these things usually kind of disappear into political ether. That said, I think the president did fine. I think there are some things that I certainly took from the speech. One being there's a pretty clear course correction that his team decided to make Mm. from 2021, a political course correction. I think that they became very enamored with working with and with signaling to their progressive base last year. I think the president feels like that was maybe a bit of a fool's errand given what his kind of political background is both who he is and also what got him to the White House I'm not saying that's right or wrong I'm saying if you just look at the text of the speech this was a speech by moderate Joe Biden this was 2020 primary Joe Biden this was not um FDR New Deal adjacent Joe Biden um he was talking about a unity agenda that kind of sounded like you know um a very uh kind of specific, bipartisan agenda of things that like, hey, we should all agree on these things. He wasn't shooting big for, hey, we want to redo the federal voting rights legislation and we want to reimagine the healthcare system and things like that, right? He was kind of shooting to the middle and he was trying, I think, to engage those independents and those suburban voters that, you know, by a lot of accounts probably made up his majority. The real question, I think, and I said this last night on CBS, but I'll say it again here, is Joe Biden's base is somewhat undefined. Mm-hmm. His base, you could say, are Black voters, progressives, college-educated voters. You could also say they're independent and suburban voters. It's clear from the president's speech last night, he thinks that the base, or at least the base that's more reliable, are those independent and suburban voters. And so that's what I took from the speech, is that his team did an analysis of what happened, in 2021 and decided we need to tack back to the middle. I
0: think the last thing you said is so interesting and we could do a whole segment on this which is it's either his base or his base that's more reliable which of course goes directly not just to the midterms in general but to who is going to vote in the midterms and that does feel obviously like what so much of this speech was about. Now, he started the speech by saying something historic before it ever began. And I'm just wondering if you could comment on whether or not this continues to make a difference in America. But for me, it continues to where he said, Madam Vice President, Madam Speaker.
2: Thank you so much. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President, our first lady and second gentleman, members of Congress and the cabinet, justice of the Supreme Court, my fellow Americans.
0: It's the first time in our nation's history we've ever had that happen. Do you think, have we all moved on from that historic moment, or are people like me still saying, yes, it makes a difference?
1: You know, I I would never say we've moved on from that, and I think certainly um, the history of the moment should not be lost. Just like it was historic, pretty much everything Barack Obama did, and it'll be historic, whether it's Kamala Harris or another woman, is in the seat in the front and not in the two seats in the back. That said, I do think you have a nation that is preoccupied with a lot of other things now that sometimes makes it hard for that to break through. The nation's preoccupied with getting out of a COVID pandemic. The nation's preoccupied with, I don't want to call it an economic crisis, but certainly a crisis of confidence um, economically. And now um, the nation's preoccupied with uh, something that's vacillating between a hot war and a cold war in a very familiar part of the world to us. So I I, I would never say that that is not important. It certainly is important, but it, it probably for a distracted nation is going to get lost in the sauce of it.
0: So let's talk about that preoccupied nation. When I was listening to this, I think I, maybe we had similar impressions, which is I thought that the president did a fine job. And he is a I don't think this is, you know, shocking news to anyone. In my opinion, he is a serviceable speaker. You know, nobody's going to start sobbing at the end of one of his speeches. He doesn't have soaring oratory skills like Barack Obama. But it did feel to me maybe more than usual like a laundry list. And I know that state of the unions we always describe as, you know, stews or lists or um you know, throw a bunch of stuff in the pot and it feels more aspirational. But this one in particular to me felt like it was a almost preoccupied person speaking to a preoccupied nation, to use your word. Was this more laundry list-ish than usual, or is this the typical just, here's a grab bag of things that I think will be popular with my base and most of them we all understand may not happen?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I guess the way I kind of consumed the speech was this way. It felt to me like the kind of after the first 15, 20 minutes of the speech, which was heavy on Ukraine and the the crisis that we're managing there, it felt like a pretty standard state of the union. Although, again, it did feel like it kind of was designed to embrace the middle and engage the middle of the country and the middle politically. It felt like it was a speech that was like written three weeks ago and then vladimir putin decided to do vladimir putin things in the other part of the world and you had to write a new topper it's almost like you know jessica you're a professor uh, a student writes a paper and then <laughs> realizes like oh crap i forgot to address this part and then they add on a paragraph or two at the beginning uh i hope i was a better student than that but i imagine we've all probably written a paper like that and that's somewhat what it felt like uh for the president What was interesting to me also is like when you think about Ukraine and and the moment that we're in there, it actually presented a real opportunity for the president to to jump into that I don't, I think, again, it was serviceable, it was fine, it did the job. I think there's more meat on the bone there. He could have really turned that in to the predominant issue of the speech which I thought from the initial reporting he was gonna do, which is talking about autocracy versus democracy. And he could have framed the entire speech around that. And you could have still probably appeal to the middle, but you could have also done some really important politics to your kind of political base that um, you're counting on the turnout in the midterms and you're counting on the turnout in, in urban areas and kind of high democratic population areas. And I, I just think that there was a missed opportunity. Talk about autocracy in Russia, and use it as kind of a comparison point for what we're fighting against here in the United States. Why it's important that we pass voting rights. Why it's important that we don't allow the the you know the trials of the Trump years to define America. You could have done that. I mean, Jessica, he didn't bring up January sixth. I know, which was shocking to me. That 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 wasn't uttered. He didn't utter January sixth. That was. I was shocked by that. And I know he was going for unity and he wasn't looking for moments that were gonna draw Republican boos or hisses. In that chamber that was attacked, that's shocking to me that basically a year later, the president did not spare one mention of it.
0: Joel, we're gonna play a quick cut from last night of the president talking about Ukraine and Vladimir Putin ordering Russian troops to invade Ukraine.
2: Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people.
0: Joel, to pick up from there, something that you said last night, and I heard echoes of it again today that you just mentioned, which is that President Biden, and I felt it too, had this missed opportunity to talk about different types of leadership and government. What is the difference between an authoritarian leader and a democratically elected leader who's responsive to the people? And one, it felt like a attack on, right? I mean, I think we both had this feeling of, there was the speech, and then they said, but oh my gosh, this happened, so let's add a paragraph. And it it didn't have any through line. But then we also didn't hear a lot about, and I heard you mention this, voting rights. So we didn't hear enough in my mind about- Four lines.
1: right? Four lines, Jessica.
0: Right. Four lines about the foundational issue that affects everything else right without a meaningful right to vote and we saw what happened in texas and we saw those trend lines and we're seeing what's happening in north carolina and we're seeing what's happening in alabama and we're seeing what's happening in georgia with both what the legislatures are doing and what judges are allowing and it feels like this missed moment to say here's why this is the blueprint if you care about anything you've got to care about democracy first Why isn't that there? Is it just that we want to hear about gas prices and we want to go to step two, we don't want to go to step one first?
1: I think, and again, I started here and I guess I'll just kind of go back here. I think the president and his team clearly telling you that they feel like there was some sort of political miscalculation that was made over, let's just call it the last 15 months, right? You know, from the time he was elected to when he was inaugurated in the first full year of his presidency, they governed and they spoke and they engaged in a certain way in a very, I would say, in a little bit more of an aggressive way than a lot of political observers thought. You know, you think of Joe Biden as like the moderate guy from Delaware. And again, he in many ways mimicked like an FDR New Deal Democrat last year. I think that they have found that to be wrought politically. And I think that the president and, and his closest advisors clearly have decided we got a course correct and we misread our coalition and we misread our base. That's the only thing that could explain the type of speech that was delivered and, and that was written. Um, that That is the only thing I kind of take away from that. And just on the outset, too, something that I was thinking about as I was preparing for that speech was. It had to be a game plan for 2022, not just for the president, but for his allies up and down the ballot across the country who have to run with him, right? Mm-hmm. But it also needs to be a vision for 2024 for a man who is you know, supposedly at this point looking to run for re-election. What is the vision that he's going to lay out for the country? And I don't know if he quite did that. I think you you certainly got some version of a game plan for many Democrats to run on. Um, and if you're Josh Gottheimer in suburban New Jersey, you probably felt pretty good about that speech. You got good quotables like fund the police. You, you got things that were said that kind of corrected the record um, on certain you know things that became right wing hobby horses that the president and his team clearly put into the speech to like push back on misinformation. But. I'm not sure if that speech was going to spark enthusiasm with the many communities that make up the president's pretty diverse coalition.
0: You just mentioned that fund the police line. I want to quickly hear exactly what President Biden said. We should all agree the answer is not
2: to defund the police. It's to fund the police. (laughs) Fund them. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. (laughs)
0: Resources and training they need to protect our communities. Joel, you mentioned this a couple of times, and I think you're just exactly right. It's a course correction. It's a pivot. It's a move back. It's a, we're not FDR anymore. Now we're centrist. Now we're running for the likely voters in the midterms. How much does it say about where we are as a nation that that line, fund the police? that we all remember it today, and that it, it's something that really stands out for us and what otherwise, I think in many ways, kind of read like a list of bullet points. Is that indicating that there are so many people who are worried about being you know, potentially soft on crime, that this is something that Democrats are gonna have to say throughout the country in order to make sure that they're not losing likely voters?
1: I think it says that people who vote and think like me, Democrats, lost the message battle on police reform. Um, the legislative battle was lost a while ago when that Tim Scott, Cory Booker, that compromised piece of legislation that they were, you know, in theory working on fell apart. And I think the moment passed from, gosh, it was maybe a year and a half, almost two years ago, when um, George Floyd was killed by Officer Chauvin, a former Officer Chauvin, in Minneapolis and this kind of sparked this nationwide come to Jesus around policing and how it impacts Black Americans, right? And, and and the threat that was posed to Black Americans, that moment went away. And I think it's actually what a lot of activists were concerned about. By the way, it's also what a lot of activists are concerned about uh, regarding voting rights, that you have all of these things that are happening. And the reason why you get frustrated with a Joe Biden and a Christian Cinema taking a knee and running out the clock, when you have the momentum to do that is because you know when the moment passes, you lose leverage. It happened five, six years ago with the terrible tragedy at Sandy Hook, or I guess it was probably about eight years ago at this point at Sandy Hook. And when you had a moment where the public's attention was focused on gun control, but the other side took a knee, ran out the clock. And I think we've seen this where have these moments and if you are the entrenched uh, power that does not want change, you've learned that all you got to really do is run out the clock and to take a boxing term, do, do a little rope-a-dope and you'll be able to survive that moment for your political beliefs. And I think we're experiencing that again around police reform. So I again, to take it back to the State of the Union, the president signaled pretty clearly that there is no meaningful reform um, in terms of holding police more accountable that is planned or there is no political will to do that. And I think that's gonna be really depressing to his base of Democratic voters, particularly African-American Democratic voters.
0: Yeah, I wish we could, as always when we're having conversations, I wish we could go more into that because I feel like there's also misunderstanding of what it means to fund and defund the police. And I wasn't saying that you were glossing over that, but in that slogan, I think we miss so much nuance and it feels like the Biden administration has located the likely voter and understood as frankly, I'm seeing here in Los Angeles, I think on a local level and in California on a less local level, that that's just not palatable anymore. Can I just
1: say something really quickly? I know we don't have a lot of time on that, but like, by the way, people in the African American community want good policing. Like, no one from like a rough, not just a rough inner city, but no one from like a heavily African-American community doesn't want policing. Gosh, they want just the opposite. They want to feel comfortable calling the police and treating the police as a community partner. But because of how the news gets absorbed, it becomes bastardized, and one phrase takes over the entire discussion, and it loses its meaning. Even the people who were pushing for, quote, to fund the police, which was a pretty small group of activists, it really wasn't elected Democratic office holders. What they were saying really, they chose a bad slogan, but what they were really saying is let's be different in how we are dispersing funding for police. Like, yes, let's invest in policing, but let's invest in different types of policing. And of course, it got bastardized, as everything does in politics. So just wanted to add a little bit more there.
0: I'm so grateful that you did. I'm I'm really not just saying that because that's what I was trying to say, which is this idea of fund or defund the police. is completely apart and separate from, I think, trying to actually find a middle ground that most of us want, which is, of course, to be protected, of course, to have public safety be a number one concern and have it keep all of us safe. And it does feel like another one of these moments where we just had to kind of capitulate to a slogan on both sides. Um, Absolutely. And it did us, I think, all a a disservice. And I'm really glad and grateful, Joel, that you, you brought that up. And I wanted to now talk about another moment that I really, I think, might stay with me. So President Biden does not use the word abortion. But he talks about Roe v. Wade and there's this kind of quick, well, this is something that we want to protect and maybe, you know, maybe we should pass a law. And the camera goes to Susan Collins, who is apparently shaking her head no, although she's kind of flirted with the idea of maybe supporting some sort of codification of Roe. And then the camera goes to Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who I think really might be the one to author the opinion that overturns Roe. And I'm wondering if you can explain how that read to you when you were consuming the speech and whether or not, you know, there was any serious proposal on the table when it comes to this looming earthquake, which is that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned either explicitly or implicitly, but it's not gonna be the law of the land in a few months. And I felt like there were, what were there four sentences on it? I'm not sure.
1: Maybe. Well, I think you said it right there in the way you framed it, which is Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. And I actually think it's strategically as as a Democrat, but also as someone who believes in women's reproductive rights, it's frustrating because I think the public discourse on this has already kind of moved to have most Americans believe that like that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's almost it's almost going to be anticlimactic when it happens, which I think will probably serve the benefit of those folks on the other side of that who have always wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade. And it's not going to create the kind of cataclysmic uh, political reaction that it really should among those of us who believe staunchly in women's reproductive rights. And I think what the president was signaling is, i got to cast my lot with things that I know I can affect right now. Like even if KBJ, Kentaji Brown Jackson gets on the Supreme Court, that's not going to do anything to stop that momentum. So um, there's, there's not much I can do about it. I can go and give a nod to this interest group that I know is important to my coalition. Can I give just a, and I know we're short on time. Oh, sure. But I'll just give like a broader observation here. Yeah. I think anytime you're a president, you do not want to come off if, as if you are a bystander. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing President Biden and his team have to be very careful with is how they are signaling their own power to their base, regardless of whether you're Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, Joe Biden, whomever. People want a president who seems like they can do presidential things. They want you to be the president. And being the president is, some of it is functional, but some of it is very esoteric. And there is something about the energy related to this presidency that started off with a lot of hope for people like me who vote like me and think like me that has waned a bit. And I think part of getting whatever mojo this president had at the beginning of his term back is to get back to being the president. I mean, it's things great in terms of like getting things passed, but it's also small in terms of making sure that like members of your own party aren't disrespecting you in public. Like I go back to that moment when Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema repeatedly embarrassed President Biden over the last four or five months related to the Build Back Better agenda related to voting rights. Those are things that strong presidents don't allow to happen. I wanna be very clear not endorsing like how Donald Trump ran his Republican party versus how Joe Biden runs his Democratic party but I will say it does tend to bear out different political outcomes when people in your party respect you and I and I'm not saying that that democrats don't respect president Biden I'm saying it is a thing to be very careful about because it's a very important part of the phenomena of the American presidency
0: so I love that observation Why is that happening? I mean, is this just Joe Biden's personality? Is it that he spent the majority of his career in the Senate and in some ways he governs like he's still a senator? What creates that maybe backseat feel?
1: That's the $100,000 question, or maybe that is the the 51 seat question. (laughs) If you're a Democrat who wants to keep control of the Senate. Uh, or the 218 seat question. If you want to keep control of the house, right? Like, how does Joe Biden get back to that, or what's happening there? Look, I I think some of it gets back to what was your what was your original goal if you're a Biden voter with voting for Joe Biden. Was it for transformational change, or was it because you are so you were so ticked off and you were so alienated by the Trump presidency that you were like, I got to get him out of there, regardless. So whatever you get from Joe Biden is gravy. I think there's a theory that a lot of voters kind of had that thought and that the vote for Biden was not a vote of passion. It was a vote of the head and not a vote of the heart. Which by the way, there's a lot of politics that, that are related to that. Joe Biden is not alone or would not be alone if that were his political reality. It is still an impressive feat to be able to win the American presidency. But there are different types of presidents. There are presidents that are sent to Washington to be transformational and to make history and to break glass. And there are those who are sent to mine the store. And I think maybe what the Biden folks are still trying to figure out is, what is our mission? What were we sent to Washington to do? Um, And you can actually see that active assessment of what's happening play out in real time. And I think that's why this presidency is mired in a little bit of listlessness at the moment
0: and maybe because they were in fact sent to do both. I mean, because I think there were a lot of people, regardless of partisan affiliation, who said, I don't want this country going in the direction that former President Trump is going to lead it. And it had nothing to do with you know, President Biden's view on taxes or immigration or the environment. And then there's a group of people who want transformational change. And it's hard to, in that Venn diagram, it's hard to get both voters and to make both voters happy. I mean, maybe what we saw in the first year is really trying to hold on to those transformational change voters. And now what we're going to see in the second year going into the midterms is, you know, holding on to those please study the ship voters.
1: It might be interesting to think about the Biden presidency in comparison to like a New York City mayor. I think I'm fascinated by like the mayors of New York City, including the one that's the mayor of New York City right now, we could do a whole two hours on. We won't. Yes. But but you know, Bill De Blasio was a very unpopular, personally, mayor. But his policies were popular, and he got reelected, and he actually accomplished a lot for being a pretty unpopular figure. But in New York City, I think the things that are important are pick up the trash, shovel the snow, say the right thing when there is an unfortunate. Um, civil incident, whether it's a police killing or whether it's an act of crime or something like that. It's a pretty straightforward vision of leadership. And kind of comparing that to Joe Biden, like if Joe Biden can get the economy working in, in a way that most Americans feel, and if he can get COVID under control, and he can manage foreign affairs passably, he might get a passing grade. And while he may not ever be anyone's candidate of passion, he may be able to ride that to more political success. And it's a really interesting story to watch.
0: It, it will be, you know, it feels in so many ways like such a pivotal moment where we're deciding who we're going to be as a nation. And some people are screaming, of course, this is the only way to go. And other people are screaming, no, there's only one other path. And so I think we'll know more, of course, after the midterms. Now, Um, Joel, to bring it back to the State of the Union, there's one thing, and I'm I'm tentative about giving this more airtime, but we talked about keeping one's party in place, and I want to talk about where the other party is right now, meaning the Republicans, and we'll cut to some tape for a minute. Here are two representatives um, from the Republican aisle who are speaking out, uh, Representative Boebert and Representative um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't know if you can hear her. And let's cut to the tape quickly.
2: These burn pits that incinerate waste, the waste of war, medical and hazards material, jet fuel, and so much more. And they come home, many of the world's fittest and best-trained warriors in the world. Never the same. Headaches, numbness, dizziness. A CANCER THAT WOULD PUT THEM IN A FLAG draped COFFIN. I KNOW. ONE OF THOSE, ONE OF THOSE SOLDIERS WAS MY SON, MAJOR Bo BIDEN. I DON'T KNOW FOR SURE IF THE BURN PIT THAT HE LIVED NEAR, THAT HIS HOOCH WAS NEAR IN IRAQ AND EARLIER THAN THAT IN KOSOVO IS THE CAUSE OF HIS BRAIN CANCER AND THE DISEASE OF SO MANY OTHER TROOPS.
0: that the new Republican Party? Is that the fringe of the Republican Party? And how much of this State of the Union is having to address those voters?
1: My career and my relative, like I, I blanch at the term expertise, but my relative knowledge is about the Democratic Party. But I'm fascinated by the Republican Party right now because you have individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert who actually animate the party. Like they are the heart and soul of what that party is, which is the Trumpist party. Um, They as as offensive and as alienating as they are to me, they are inspiring and engaging to Republican partisans. And like here belies the problem for Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell and whatever Republican um, ends up being at the head of the ticket, even if it's Donald Trump. You have to keep those passions stoked while also not drawing away and driving away those middle-of-the-road voters that the president, President Biden, was trying to win back favor with last night in the State of the Union, and also voters that left the Republican Party in 2020 and made up the Biden coalition. There are so many either never-Trumpers or nervous-Trumpers or disaffected Trump voters that went to Joe Biden in 2020. And it's because of what we saw from Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's because of white nationalists, you know, signaling that's been going on in that party. And that's kind of the cultural element of it. But if you'll remember a couple of days before the State of the Union, there was this whole thing with Rick Scott, the head of the Republican Senate committee. He put out this plan that he and Mitch McConnell have essentially been going back and forth about in public. The plan is less important. I mean, it, the, the plan essentially wants to raise taxes on many Republicans. And Mitch McConnell went ballistic because essentially he's saying to Rick Scott, hey, this needs to be a referendum on Joe Biden. This doesn't need to be about Republican ideas, which is kind of like where the Republican Party has been for like the last like 40 years. It's about like stopping the other side as opposed to really offering anything. I don't say that with judgment. I'm just saying that as like a statement of fact. But like the Republican Party really and truly what they have to decide right now is whether or not they're going to do the smart thing or the thing that makes their base happy. The smart thing is to put people like Lynn Youngkin and Kim Reynolds, who gave that Republican response to the State of the Union, put those people forward, put young, more diverse leaders forward and have them be the voices of the party and talk about things like the economy and talk about education, um, whatever way they want to talk about that related to CRT, right? Those are things that they know animate their base and are safe places for them to be politically. But many of them want to do the Marjorie Taylor Greene law and Berber thing, if that makes sense. So fighting the passion and the heart of the party versus the head of the party. I am really fascinated to see how that happens, because I'm telling you, if Republicans just went away for the next six months, they'd probably pretty easily win the House, win the Senate, and really put Democrats on their heels. But the only way that they don't have that kind of successful night in November of this year is if they cut off the nose or spite their face, if they keep doing things that are harming themselves and cannibalizing their support. So I'm I'm fascinated. I I, I don't mean to, you know, wallow in uh, the relative difficulty of being a Republican strategist right now, but it's fascinating and it's the only thing that gives me hope as a Democrat.
0: Well, we are going to have to check back in with you, Joel Payne, veteran political strategist and commentator, CBS News political contributor, host of Here Comes the Payne podcast. You can find him on Twitter at P-A-Y-N-E-D-C. Joel, thank you so much for passing judgment with us.
1: Thank you, Jessica. Always a pleasure.
0: And you can find me across, as Joe says, the socials at Levinson Jessica, and we will talk to you all soon.